You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would, just as a starting place tonight, turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 9. Only keep yourself and keep your soul very carefully, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. Remember the day you stood before Yahweh your God at Horeb, when Yahweh said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may cause them to hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask His blessing on our time tonight. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for the opportunity we have tonight to open Your Word together and to think about the principles that are found in Your Word for multi-generational influence. The things that You teach us, Lord, that should shape the way that we live at home when our children are small, growing up in our homes, and Lord, principles that should shape the way that we live after they are graduated from our homes and on their own, married in most cases, and having a family of their own. Lord, these truths that we'll learn tonight help us to understand how we might glorify You all the days of our life and have an influence on our children and our children's children all the days of our lives. So we ask you to bless our time tonight. Lord, help me to be clear and helpful. And Lord, strengthen us as we always ask in our inner man to receive the things that we will see. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were here this morning, you heard me say that this past week, Pastor Josh and I were on Thursday at what's called the Master's Fellowship Regional Meeting. And so there we met with pastors and wives and the theme was on a pastor's home, a pastor's family life. And the task that I was assigned was to talk about in a breakout session how to have a shepherding influence on your children in their adult years. And as you know, what I always like to do is if I'm teaching something somewhere else, either before I go or when I come back, I want to pass it on to you. This church is what is most important to my heart, when it comes to ministry, this is where my focus is. And so, whatever I share somewhere else, I want to have you in my heart and you in view. And so tonight, I wanted to do something that's different for me. As you know, I mean, we do verse-by-verse exposition. Tonight's going to be very different from that. It's going to be really the passing on of biblical principles. In fact, I would say it's not so much even a sermon as it is just a presentation of biblical principles on a particular subject, shepherding adult children. And as a result, it probably isn't going to feel like a sermon, but if you hang in there, I think it will be edifying and helpful. At least that's my prayer. If the Lord would make use of it tonight for our good, yours and mine, as we seek to serve Him. Where I want to begin tonight is just demonstrating what I know that you know to be true, and that is we are meant to have multi-generational influence. God has not designed that our influence in the lives of our children would stop after they leave our homes. It's to go on. And that's why 
We read verses like we read just a moment ago that speak not only of teaching our children, but teaching our grandchildren. If we're to have an influence on our grandchildren, that requires, doesn't it, that our children allow us that influence. So there's an influence in the lives of our children that then extends to the lives of our grandchildren. And as the Lord taught Israel, this is a responsibility. Take care, keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. So teaching our children, then teaching our grandchildren the words of God. That speaks of multi-generational influence. Statements that speak of the joy of grandchildren impart that same sense of influence and responsibility. Proverbs 17, verse 6 says, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. Children delight in their parents. Grandparents delight in their children, but especially their grandchildren. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged. So if you look at it from the standpoint of what we're to be passing on in our older years from Scripture, you see this indication of multi-generational influence. But if you reverse the picture and you think about how we are to treat our parents and our grandparents, that also speaks of multi-generational influence. Exodus 20 verse 12 says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your parents. Obedience to our parents pertains to our time under their authority in their home. But even after we're grown and gone, we're to honor them for a lifetime. In fact, one of the indications that a culture is in big trouble is there is no respect for the aged, no honor for parents. Matthew 15 verse 4 says, For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Now, if the death penalty was in view under the Old Covenant for the reviling of parents, certainly those children must have been old enough to be judged as and dealt with as adults. So here are adult children in view being taught to honor father and mother and not revile your father or your mother. You see this ongoing influence in the first chapter of the book of Job. Job had seven sons, three daughters. That first chapter tells us. And then if you read the chapter, you see those children would gather regularly in one another's homes, like a rotation of the children meeting together, enjoying fellowship together, spending time together. And the Bible tells us that after his sons and daughters had feasted, he would intercede for them. Job 1 verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with him. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. They're grown, but he doesn't stop being concerned about their spiritual condition. They're grown, but he doesn't stop interceding for them and making a contribution 
in prayer and intercession on behalf of their spiritual well-being. Those are positive examples, but you see the same truth in some negative examples. I think about Eli, 1 Samuel chapter 2. Eli is a priest. He has two sons who are despicable men. They are wicked men. God eventually kills those two sons, but He also judges Eli. Eli dies under judgment because he failed to hold his sons accountable. Oh, he spoke to them. He rebuked them. You can see that in the text, but the Lord holds him responsible for not taking the kind of action where he would not go along with them. In some way, he participated in what they were doing wrong by just allowing them to enrich him through their disobedient actions. 1 Samuel 2.29, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Why do you honor your sons above me? Well, they're grown. I realize the uniqueness of that situation. You're talking about the priesthood and all of that. But nonetheless, Eli is held responsible for not holding his adult sons accountable. Certainly that speaks of a responsibility for influence in the lives of our children even after they are grown. You see, the same multi-generational influence on display in the family of God. Right? We shouldn't imagine that we're called to practice something in the church that we wouldn't practice at home, in our own families. In fact, when you talk about qualifications for elders, the man is tested in his home life. The man doesn't know how to manage his household. How will he take care of the church of God? There's this transfer of the kind of leadership that's on display in home life, family life, that then is on display in ruling well in the life of the church. And so you read, for example, Titus chapter 2, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. What are old women doing in the life of the church? They're teaching younger women to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the Word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. In the same way, the older men of the church are to be passing on truths of the younger men of the church. To be self-controlled, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So here in the life of the church you see multi-generational instruction. This is not just teaching from a pulpit or teaching in a class. This is passing on the Christian life one generation at a time in the way of example. 1 Timothy 5.1 talks about how we see each other. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. In all purity. So, whether we view it from the perspective of what's positively taught or taught by negative example, whether we see it from the perspective of the parent or the offspring, from the family or the church, 
the Bible teaches multi-generational influence on the part of believers. So the question I want us to consider tonight is, how do we do that well? How can we have a shepherding influence in the lives of our children for a lifetime that will be healthy and God-honoring? That's what we talk about tonight. And eventually what I'm going to give you are 15 avenues of access for continued influence in the lives of your children. 15 ways you can go on influencing them throughout the rest of their lives. But before we get to that, I want us to think about a foundation for that. That doesn't just happen. You having a shepherding influence in the lives of your adult children, it doesn't arise out of nowhere. It doesn't just happen. In fact, if you have children at home, whether you know it or not, you're laying a foundation right now for what kind of relationship you're going to have with them after they're out of your home. So if we think about doing this well, we have to begin where we are. And if your children are at home, this is where you have to start. So let's think about the foundation for future influence. And I'm going to break it up into two categories. To lay the foundation, you have to know what you're responsible for as a parent, and you have to know what you're not responsible for. What you can do and what you can't do. And when I say can do, I don't mean in your own strength. I mean by the grace of God, by the means that God has supplied, by the working of the Lord Himself in and through your life. Thinking about the synergistic way that God works in and through the lives of His people, here are things He has imparted to us as responsibilities. That if you neglect these things, it is going to sometimes be felt in painful ways after your children are out of your home. What are we responsible for? I want to give you seven things. First of all, we are responsible to believe and to model what we teach. Do you believe what you say you believe? If you and I want to know what we really believe, watch how we live. Easy to say we believe something, but then are you practicing it? To state it negatively, Nothing will kill your influence more than hypocrisy. I'm not talking about accused hypocrisy. Sometimes children leave the home, they become embittered, they accuse their parents of being hypocrites, or they're going through a season of rebellion while they're in your home and they accuse you of being a hypocrite. They know better. It's a lever they use to try to get something they want. I'm not talking about accused hypocrisy. I'm talking about real hypocrisy. By the way, hypocrisy means to wear a mask. It is to pretend to be someone you're not. It is to profess that you love the Lord and you want to walk in obedience to Him, but then look at your life. There's not a real striving after that. That's different than stumbling in many ways as the book of James describes it. We all stumble in many ways. I'll talk more about this in a moment. The standard for us cannot be perfection. There's no perfect people in this room, no perfect parenting in this room. But genuineness is something we must be characterized by. Do your children know that you really believe what you believe? Do your children know you really model, you live what you say you believe? Second, and in line with that first thing you're responsible for, you're responsible to prioritize the souls of your children above everything. Do your children know that what matters most to you 
about them and about their life is eternity. That they would know the living God. That they would know Him. That they would grow in His wisdom. That they would not waste their life. That they would live for Christ. Is that what they know is most important to you? And again, there's what we say, and then there's what we model. This will be challenged as your children grow up. Does their soul mean more to you than their athletic success? Does their soul mean more to you than their educational success? Does their soul mean more to you than their relational success? However you wanted to define that. In other words, what I'm talking about, what comes to my mind when I think about that, would be the horrific ways that I've seen parents all of a sudden forget the standards of the Word of God when some little boy or little girl is interested in their child. And now, I don't know if the child is as thrilled as the mother is, or the child is as thrilled as the father is. And all of a sudden, the standards of the Word of God go out the window because someone's interested to date or to court or whatever you want to call it. They're interested in your child. Does their soul matter to you? more than having a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Does their soul matter to you more than winning the game? Does their soul matter to you more than getting straight A's? We'll leave them at home tonight. Church is meeting, but we'll leave them at home because they got a big test tomorrow. Never mind, they could have prepared on Friday or Saturday. But we were too busy with other things. So church time will be the time that we choose for our studies. Do you children know that their soul matters more to you than anything? That's the foundation for ongoing influence in their lives. Believe it or not, I'll talk more about that in a moment. Third, you're responsible to love their mother, dads. You're responsible to love their father, moms. And to practice points one and two in your marriage. Are you practicing the Word of God at home? And are you practicing the Word of God in the first relationship of the home, that is, you and your spouse? Are you living the Christian life with their mother or their father? And I say this without apology throughout this entire talk tonight. I'm going to lay a heavier burden on the men. I'm not taking the responsibility away from moms, but sir, you and I are called to set the pace in our homes. In that picture that God has given us, for how to honor Him in marriage, we have been assigned the role of Christ. Sacrificial love, selfless example, serving, protecting, providing. It's not serve me, take care of me, help me. It's you and I as men stepping into a role where we love our wife in a way that our children see Christ. But as I said, moms, that doesn't take responsibility away from you because your children will learn something about the church, about how you respond to their father. In the marriage, is it clear that the most important thing about the person you're married to is their soul? Fourth, we are responsible to strive for a home where there's discipline. The children of this generation are dying for lack of discipline. The culture is in a death spiral due to the breakup of the nuclear home and due to an absence of discipline as a result. 
Are you striving for a home where discipline is consistent? One of the biggest issues I see with young parents is their discipline is hit or miss. It is all over the map. Your children do not know what to expect. It is inconsistent. At the same time, however, it needs to be wise. So consistent discipline does not mean I never take into consideration circumstances. When Jackie and I were raising ours, we had four. We would remind each other sometimes, you know what, we've just been on an eight-hour car trip. They really are tired. And so sometimes the answer was not to discipline them, it was to put them to bed. We'll talk about this tomorrow. So discipline consistent must be, yes, absolutely, 100%, but wise and gospel-oriented. Does the discipline in your home reflect the same kind of grace and mercy and patience and love and kindness that God extends to you every day? Do you thank God for His grace, then serve as the law in the lives of your children? The law is necessary. The law is good. But the law points us to the grace of God and His Son. And so even when our children require discipline that is painful for the moment, and that is going to be often as you raise them, it still needs to be carried out in a spirit that reflects love for them, joy in them, hope for them, patience with them, a goal that goes beyond your convenience. So much discipline in young families is really about the fact that their children are inconveniencing them. That's why it's inconsistent. You let it go, you let it go, you let it go, you let it go until it drives you crazy, and then boom. Oftentimes with yelling and lack of self-control. That works maybe when they're four or five or six. It's not going to work when they're 14, 15, and 16. And it's not what the Lord ever designed anyway. Think about how the Lord disciplines you. He doesn't just let you go, does He? He doesn't just allow you to get away with sin. He disciplines and scourges every son of me receives. And yet we all can say in this room, my, how patient God is with me. How gracious He is to me. How merciful He is to me. Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? You have not dealt with me according to my sins but according to your steadfast loving kindness. Your children see that? As I mentioned a moment ago, 1 Timothy 3, 4, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Fifth, I'm responsible to teach in a way that all of life and all of our circumstances form the schoolhouse. We train our children in a way that we teach them that all of our life is before the face of God. To say it negatively, you don't compartmentalize their training. This is the holy realm and this is the natural realm. This is when we really concentrate on looking good and doing what's right. And over here, we're in a different set of circumstances, so we just explain away things that are sinful based on our personality or our mood or our humanity or whatever the case may be. No, all of our life is the schoolhouse. There's never a time we're not learning. Never a time we're not called to obey God. And the standard for that is His Word. Deuteronomy 6 verse 7 
speaking of the Word of God, you shall teach them diligently to your children. How do I teach them? And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Sitting, walking, laying down, getting up. Every day, in every moment, there's an opportunity to learn what it means to walk with God. In your home, do your children get that sense that you're a family that recognizes that all that takes place all the time in every circumstance is about a relationship with God? So that the things of the Lord are talked about in your home naturally, normally, regularly, constantly. Whatever the challenge is, do you relate it back to your walk with God? But in a way that's not rigid, awkward, unnatural. In a way that this is our life. Sixth, hand in hand with that, we're responsible to live lives of Scripture saturation. The Bible is not just the standard by which our family operates, and that should be true. The Bible is the standard by which our family functions. It's also the lens through which we see all of life. We see life through the eyes of the Word of God. Talking about the Word of God, learning the Word of God, repeating the Word of God, applying the Word of God so that the life is Scripture-saturated. I tell seminary students, you're going to meet with a lot in the way of ministry that there's not a blueprint for it. There's not a handbook for it. Yes, the Word of God is sufficient, and there are biblical principles that apply in whatever situation you find yourself in, but there's not a black and white statement about what to do right here. So that a lot of ministry, and I would say this is just as true about the Christian life as a whole, a lot of the Christian life is really a matter of judgment, wisdom, response, reaction. You don't have time to go make a plan. It's here. It's meeting you right now. So what I'm saying to you is, if your life is Scripture saturated, then what comes out in those judgments, in those moments of decision, in those responses and reactions, is much more likely to honor God. Because your mind and your heart are being conditioned by your knowledge of truth. You know, the truth goes in, therefore the truth comes out. Responsible for this. When you finish on a Sunday, you hear the sermon. Do you talk about it afterward? Do you talk about it on the ride home? Do you talk about it during the week? You and your wife, do they hear you talk about it during the week and make application of it? Do you talk to your children about it? Whatever you're reading at home with each other in the Word of God, are you talking about these things and applying these things and thinking in terms of the truth? You've heard me say it before. I'm going to repeat it. This kind of life where all of life is before the face of God, all of life is the schoolhouse, and we're constantly thinking and talking in terms of the Word of God is far more valuable than simply having three nights a week family altar. I'm not saying don't have that. What I'm saying is if that's all you have, and so your family get used to sitting down, this is Bible teaching time, now it's over, let's go do what we do. You're compartmentalizing their training. Don't be surprised when they treat God and His Word superficially. Seventh, this is very important. I'm not giving these in order of importance. I'm just simply walking through some things that I think are important. But seventh, this is foundational for multi-generational influence. We've got to foster an environment of truth-telling. Loving accountability. We tell each other the truth. I'm not talking about just simply factual truth. I mean telling each other spiritual truth. 
no one has a right to do what is wrong. So that even if my children recognize I'm doing something that's wrong, as long as they relate to me in a way that acknowledges everything the Bible says about the relationship to me. So they're addressing me as their father. They're addressing me with respect and even a heart of submission. They have every right to love me enough to say, Dad, that's not right. I mean, the way you spoke to mom isn't right. Or the way you just dealt with their sibling isn't right. And be able to do that without fear of wrath. Are you fostering that in your family? That no matter who the member of the family is, dad, mom, children, no one has a right to do what's wrong because we're Christians. Or we're evangelizing our children so that they see how Christians live. Say it another way, we love each other. I'm going to say something, you're going to see how this can go on for a lifetime. We love each other too much to ignore what would destroy us. I love you too much to stay silent when I should speak. No, we're not to speak on everything, and there are some things that are better to be prayed about or give time and watch what the Lord does. But when you see something that's destroying a person, you cannot just ignore it. And are you doing that at home? Do they see this between mom and dad? Do they see that mom and dad have the kind of humility and gentleness and love for God and love for each other? They have conversations about when things are not what they should be. And what they see is not anger and frustration and arguments. What they see are two people who benefit from that and thank each other for that and respond with Confession of sin and forgiveness of sin. These are things we are responsible for. Now, let me move to some things we're not responsible for that are very important to say. I'm going to give you three. One, I'm not responsible to regenerate my children. I don't have the power to regenerate my children. I don't have the power to save my children. Do you know that faithful parents can have unbelieving children? Do you know that faithful parents can have children who reject their faith? It's heartbreaking, isn't it? To be a believer, especially if the foundation's in place we've talked about. I mean, you have prioritized their soul from their youngest years. They know that. They could tell you that. It's true. And yet they have a heart of stone, not a heart of flesh. And at this point, as we speak tonight, don't know Jesus. I want to encourage you, faithful Christian parent, you don't have the power to save them. You're not responsible for that. 1 Corinthians 7.16, different context, but the principle is the same. Paul addressing husbands and wives who now have been converted. They're married to an unbeliever. The unbeliever does not want to remain with them. They don't want their marriage to end, so they're striving to do everything they can to keep the marriage together, but the unbeliever wants to go. And Paul is telling them, you can let them go. And he makes this statement in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 7, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? There is no guarantee of that. See, what about the statements in Proverbs where, you know, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it, those sorts of statements. 
Those are truisms. They are the pattern. They are normally the case, but they're not promises. Most of the time, children raised in faithful Christian homes, just by the grace of God, come to faith in Christ, but it's not always the case. And that knowledge should have a humbling effect on you as a parent, because if your children have come to faith in Christ, and if they're living faithful lives and pursuing the Lord with all their hearts, is that because you were an all-star parent? Or is that the grace of God? God makes use of good parenting. He does. But here's the deal. You can do your best. And if the Lord doesn't build the house, the laborers labor in vain. Beware constructing in your mind a parenting seminar where the star is you and your wife. Let me tell you all how it ought to be done. What you have forgotten is only the Lord saves. Second thing you're not responsible for is a perfect track record because we know from the Scriptures that progressive sanctification will never produce a perfect track record on this side of glorification. I mentioned it earlier, Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? James 3, 2. For we all stumble in many ways. 1 John 1, 9 is there for a reason. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what characterizes believers. We see our sins and we confess them. Not the one who says, I have no sin. Not the one who says, I've never sinned. Those people don't know the Lord. But the one who sees his or her sin and confesses his sins, this is someone who has the Spirit of God. You will look back over your parenting career and have many regrets. You will look back and say, there are so many things I could have done better, so many things I could have done and would do different if I had the opportunity. I want to encourage you with the thought that if I rewound your life and we started back at the very beginning, you would still have things you regret and still things to confess by the time you reached tonight. Because that's the nature of progressive sanctification. It's not a perfect track record. I'm not saying you wouldn't benefit from what you know. I'm not saying you wouldn't do it better, but you would still fail. Stumble in many ways. This is what progressive sanctification is like until we're glorified one day. Third thing you're not responsible for is to raise them after they've been raised. When they have left your home, when they are in their adult life, we now must influence them in a different way. In our home, it's a relationship of authority and obedience. Outside of our home, it's a relationship of friendship, counsel, honor. If they take to heart the commands of God, it's a relationship of honor, not submission. And so we relate to them as adults. Even believing children are not taught to obey their parents for a lifetime. If you're a wise parent, as your children leave your home, you begin to respect them as adults and you leave them room to make the decisions that they are called to make. You're there for a lifetime to influence and counsel and pray with them and help them in any way you can. But they have adult responsibility. And maybe you came to Christ later in life. Maybe one of the reasons your heart is so heavy, especially if you have unbelieving children, is you could wish that you knew the Lord back then. I want to encourage you with the knowledge that all of us were saved right on time. 
Salvation is a sovereign work of God. We did not determine when we would be born from above. The Lord did that. So you're called to uniquely glorify Him from the point where you found Him, from the point where He found you. You came to know Him. From that point forward, now glorify the Lord. Well, how do I deal with all this baggage from my past? In a way that glorifies God. So now navigate all that baggage in a way that glorifies God to the best of the ability that God gives you. These are foundational things for future influence. Know what you are responsible for. Believe what you believe and live what you teach. Prioritize their soul above everything. Love their mother or their father. Live the Christian life at home. Strive for a home that is well-disciplined but wise and gospel-oriented. Teach in a way that the whole world is the schoolhouse. Never a time that God is out of our view. Saturate your lives with Scripture so that when you're tested in a moment, what comes out is truth because truth has gone in. Let the Word of God be the standard for your family life and the lens through which you see the world. Tell the truth to each other. Hold each other accountable, but in a way that reflects your various roles. Respond to that in a way that's thankful, not in a way that's defensive and angry and confrontational. And then know what you're not responsible for. You can't regenerate your children. You'll never have a perfect track record. You can't go back and re-raise them after they're gone. I guess one final thought before I move on. By the way, that's what makes those 18 years or however long the Lord gives you, that's what makes them so strategic, isn't it? That you just have those years. So as you think about you know, building your career or building this or building that, just realize... Wherever you give time, you're taking it away from somewhere. This also, I think, exalts, doesn't it, the tremendous impact of a godly wife and mother. Because the responsibility for provision has been given to husbands, and the home life is the place that God has assigned where the woman is to glorify God in her role, in her service. This gets to even how we talk about what she does, brothers. Does she know? Do we talk about her work in a way that diminishes it? Like all you do is this. Look at all I do and all you do. Or do you see it as the tremendously important thing that it is? She's with them more than you are, sir. So are you thankful and appreciative of her role and her work in the Lord? So with that foundation in place, now how do we influence them when they're out of our homes? Just out of curiosity, how many of you have children who have graduated your home? Would you raise your hand? All right, bunches. How do you go on influencing your children once they're gone? Fifteen ways. First of all, prayer. That's not a small thing. May the Lord save you and save me from thinking, yeah, but that's just a small thing. No, that's the biggest thing of all. That's asking God to do what you and I can't do. This is what we saw Job doing for his children, interceding for them. I think about this often. One of the things that I want until the Lord calls me home is for the people in my family to know that their mother and I are lifting their names before the throne of God's grace every single day. There's someone on this side of eternity who is taking their name before the living God every day 
in prayer, interceding for them every single day. I pray that your children know that about you. And sometimes just to encourage them, I'll just send them a family text. just want you to know you've been prayed for this morning. Sometimes I'll even mention what I'm praying for so they'll know the specifics of what I'm lifting before the Lord. I think the greatest treasure in the world in terms of Christian love for each other is when someone says, I'm praying for you. I can't think of anything more important than that. So for a lifetime, as long as the Lord leaves you here, this is one way you influence the lives of your children, on your knees. Second, evangelism. Evangelism took place if you were saved when you were raising your children. Evangelism was taking place in your home. Well, what has that laid the foundation for? Gospel conversations after they've left your home. If we've laid that foundation well, our children will never be surprised when we bring up the gospel, Christ, salvation, new birth, fellowship with God. Have those conversations with your children. If you're concerned about the genuineness of their conversion, do you talk to them? Do you have the kind of relationship in your family where you could say to your son or daughter to be really truthful with you, I'm concerned that you might not know the Lord. Let's talk about this. Let me tell you what my concerns are, why I have them. Then you can answer them and put that away. And I'll joyfully receive that. But these are my concerns. This will also then extend to evangelism conversations with your grandchildren one day. What a joy that is. When a little boy or girl wants to talk to you, granddaddy or grandma, about Jesus, about salvation. Prayer, evangelism. Third avenue for influence, exhortation. I want to be a Barnabas to my family. I want to be an encouragement to them. And one way that I want to do that is by exhorting them to walk in the way they should but not in a way that is oppressive and dark and heavy-handed, but in a way that says, here is the way, and there's joy in walking in that way, and I want to exhort you with all my heart to take that route. Do you have the kind of conversations in your family that you can talk about the things they should be doing? And again, I hope I don't have to lay this foundation over and over again, but I want to say it. I'm not talking about some sort of legalism. I'm talking about from the right vantage point. Son, I didn't see your family at church tonight. Everything okay? Can you have that kind of conversation? You should be able to. Exhortation. Encouragement. Another side of that coin, encouragement. This has to do with cheering them on as they're striving to walk in the way of truth. Let them know you see what the Lord is doing in their lives. Let them know you rejoice in God for every good thing you see the Lord doing in their lives. I'm proud of you. That means a lot, you know, coming from a Christian mom or dad. I thank God for the good things I see. And here are some things I see. It goes so far. So that for the rest of their lives, in a right kind of way, in an adult kind of way, they will look to you as a wise counselor for solutions, assessment even. How am I doing? Encouragement. Dad, I'm down right now. I feel discouraged about this or that. Those foundational things we talked about, it's going to lay the ground for those kinds of conversations to happen into their adult years. Correction is an important part of the family life that's larger than just you and your wife. Now they've graduated the home. Now maybe you're like Job. you got seven children. 
does correction belong to the family dynamic? Can we correct each other? And again, this is going to be much more difficult if you haven't laid that foundation in their childhood years where we love each other too much to ignore what would destroy us. If that's been established, no one has the right to do what's wrong, and I love you too much to just stand by and say nothing and do nothing when you're destroying yourself. If that's been established, then into their adult years, there's a loving, positive, Christ-honoring kind of correction that can take place. I don't want to embarrass my children tonight, so I'm being very careful about personal anecdotes. But I can tell you this, I don't think they would mind me telling you that there have been times where my married ones, I've gotten a call from not my kids, from their spouse. Hey, can we sit down and talk with you? And my kids don't like that because they know, I mean, they end up liking it. They're thankful, but they know that that's how our family operates. First of all, all the ones that my kids have married are now like my kids. That's how Jack and I view them and treat them. By marriage, you are mine, and we are yours. What that means is that when it comes to conversations about the Bible and the truth and what we should do, there's no foot on the scale in favor of one over the other. What's right here, you see? What is right here? You've got to aim for that in your family dynamic, that in a way that still respects their adulthood. You're not putting yourself in the way all the time, but when the time arises they need help or you see they're hurting themselves, then the expectation is not that we would ignore it. We'll speak to it. Comfort. Acts 14.21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We're going to go home one day, if we live very long, having passed through many troubles. And so as children get older, the difficulties of life grant you access for ongoing shepherding opportunity. Loss of job, financial struggle, Loss of a child, sickness, disappointments, moments where obedience is needed, but it's hard obedience, difficult obedience. And you and I have the opportunity to come alongside them and to comfort them in their hurt and their pain, speaking God's truth to them in love. It means you have to be available. It means they have to know you're accessible. Patience. What is your shepherding influence? Well, it's going to require patience. Sometimes the influence you're granted as a parent is seasonal. Our adult children will go through seasons where they're more open to our influence and less open to our influence. Again, they're grown. You can't force your way in. So when the time comes that they're not as open with you, maybe even less loving toward you. Are you still available? Are you still accessible? Are you willing to be helpful after they've disregarded your counsel? Without your first words being, I told you so. I don't know if that's always helpful to you. Is that what you like to hear? 
when you already know that you've messed up? Patience. Are you a patient parent toward your adult children? I guess the next thing I'll mention, that's self-control. Because sometimes that patience, that season that requires patience can turn into frustration. How do you respond when there's pent-up frustration? How do you respond when they overtly disrespect you? Your response to that kind of treatment, let's just say they're mistreating you as a parent, your response to that will either leave the door open for future influence or erect a barrier out of hurt. 1 Peter 3.9 says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. Humility. Your influence, both in their young years and in their adult years, your influence will either be more or less powerful based on whether you walk in pride or humility. There is no influence in pride. Humility is beautiful and powerful and influential. Do your children know you to own your failures? If I asked them tonight, can you think of the last time your father or mother admitted they were wrong? What would they say? Do you confess your wrongs as sins? Or is it some lesser thing? Do you ask for forgiveness? hope Jackie will not be mad at me, but I do think it's important for us to realize how we need to grow. When she and I were first married, we were both very young in the Lord. She was maybe two years, three years in the Lord. She grew up in a home where no one ever admitted they were wrong. No one asked for forgiveness. No one confessed their sins. Now, our home was on the opposite end of the spectrum. Sometimes it was easy to say I was wrong and not really own it in my heart. So that could happen in our family. So you had... Two wrongs, right? Trying to learn how to function. But I can remember at one point recognizing the way she tells me that she's sorry is just by being nice again. You know, it was a change in the atmosphere. All right, I'll take that. But over time, we both learned to say, I was wrong. Would you forgive me? And that's a part of humbling ourselves. Do your children, do they have these memories of you asking for forgiveness with her mother or father? Do they have memories of you, when needed, asking for forgiveness from them? Son, I'm sorry. I responded in a way that wasn't the Lord. That was my flesh. Or I'm sorry. I didn't hear you all the way out, and I should have. You're trying to explain yourself, but I didn't give you the opportunity. I'm sorry I snapped at you, and I am tired, but that doesn't give me an excuse. Impatience is wrong. Would you forgive me? Sorry I hurt your feelings. Didn't mean to, didn't know that I did that. I ask you to forgive me. What is this? Humility. Next one, example. This is not something you aim at artificially. You know, let me make a big display of some area of obedience in my life, hoping it'll influence my children. No, this is quiet faithfulness. A deposit you make through a genuine walk with God that takes place before their eyes over the span of your life. Your children know whether you are personally committed to what you teach. And you will have tremendous influence on their lives if they know you believe what you teach. Or John MacArthur once said the greatest gift he felt like he had given to his children 
was that he had strived to live what he teaches. John 13, 15, our Lord said this, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you, after he washed the disciples' feet. 1 Timothy 4, 12, Let no one despise you for your youth, Timothy, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. That's influence. Titus 2, 7, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, sound speech, that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Other than your prayers, this might be the most powerful influence you have. Not your words, but your ways. Example. Next, unconditional love. Do your children know that there's nothing that will ever separate them from your love? Not their very worst moments will ever separate you and them from the standpoint of love. Modeling the Savior's love for us. Now I want to say, this is not natural love I'm talking about. This is not the weak, permissive kind of love that you see in the world all the time. I'm talking about loving them by biblical standards. But from that standpoint, you're devoted to them for a lifetime. Even if they should one day live in a way that means church discipline, and in that way, you even have to deal with them as someone in need of evangelism, even if it were to put a barrier in your relationship to them on that level, they still will know you love them. It's not an expression of hatred, it's an expression of love. Your children know that. It's amazing to me how many professing Christian families live at home like love is on a conditional basis. If you live like I think you should live, then I'm going to love you. If you don't live like I think you should live, you're going to feel as though, at least, I don't love you. Pouting. I don't think it's the fruit of the Spirit, do you? I don't see that in the list. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, pouting. It's not in there. Putting them at a distance, at arm's length. Short answers, snippy answers. You're going to know I'm mad. That's not helpful. Should sin disturb us? Of course. Does it change the enjoyment of fellowship? Yes, but what ought to be clear to them is it's not a love issue ever, which means you're going to have to talk. You're going to have to talk in a way where they know it's not love that's the issue. I love you. An ongoing way you can influence them is assistance. That is helping each other in practical ways. If you want to have an influence on your children and your children's children, one of the key elements is availability. I hear this sometimes out of the mouths of professing believers. I just can't wait until that last one leaves and I'll have their mother all to myself. When our children were growing up, Jackie and I loved each other as we were loving them. Now that they've graduated, now we have nine grandchildren, two more on the way. I'm not supposed to, sure I'm supposed to say that. Two more on the way. <laughs> Now I'm going to see if they love me, okay? <laughs> One of the sweetest parts of that is when they not only allow us to be a part of the lives of their children, but allow us to serve them when it comes to their children. Babysitting is what I have in mind. The other night, my youngest son and I got to go to the first game of the World Series in Arlington. 
the one where Seager hit the game-tying home run and Adolis Garcia, I know you all love him, hit the walk-off. We drove home after the game. I got home at 4 in the morning, and I knew that Lincoln was at our house because I had to be somewhere at 7.30. I'm thinking, okay, I've got an hour and a half, two hours I can lay down. And I go to my bed, and there's that boy laying right there in my spot. Can I tell you, he grinds his teeth like no one's business and sleeps sideways, all right? Feet on me, grinding of teeth. You're longing for at least two hours of sleep, and you're laying there for an hour going, I love this kid, all right? I love him. But in all sincerity, how sweet is that? That I get to experience my grandchildren. So what I'm saying to you is this. If you're going to be that kind of person who says, okay, they're gone, they're graduated. Now don't bother us. Call somebody else to babysit. You know, we're out now having our fun. Well, then don't be surprised when you don't have much ongoing influence. Do you want to be served or do you want to serve? Do you want to be a part of their lives or only be a part in a way that never would inconvenience you? I think this is true of our entire family. We strive for this anyway. We try to help each other. Isn't that true in the family of God? We help each other. There have been times that my kids, since they graduated, have lived in our home while they built a house. There was a time that Jackie and I lived with one of them while we built our house. A year. Back in each other's lives in close quarters. Loaning each other vehicles if one breaks down. Helping each other move. That's the worst of all. Call the church. <laughs> Don't call me, please. But they do. For small things, at least. Assistance. It's an ongoing avenue for influence. Mutual respect. Treat your children like they're adults when they are adults. You move into a relationship where they are your friends. And that's my last thought on that. Friendship. Your adult children can be your best friends. If you haven't done this and you have grown kids and they live in the area, strive to do this. We have family night dinners every week. And we rotate houses. So all four of our children and their spouses and all their children, we gather at someone's house every week, usually on Wednesday nights. And it's free-flowing. It's not like you have to stay there for three hours. Sometimes we're there for an hour, sometimes for an hour and a half. But we see each other face-to-face, -face, and we have influence in each other's lives. Birthdays, anniversaries, holidays, regular activities. Spend time with each other. You want influence? Shepherding influence? You've got to know each other. Final avenue I want to mention. This is it. You'll influence your children into their adult years when they see you trust God's sovereignty. Do they see you trust the Lord? This is the stabilizing influence for the entire family. This is what imparts that sense of, if I can count on this, no matter what we go through, mom and dad trust the Lord. If we go through health issues, if we go through challenges of all sorts, they trust the Lord. That includes your confidence in God's work in their lives. I'll finish with this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. 
For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Is that what characterizes your family? We love each other. We long for each other. We yearn to spend time with each other. We are confident in God's work in each other's lives. If any member of the family doesn't know the Lord, then we're praying for their salvation, striving for gospel conversation, realizing what we can't do. I don't have the power to save them. Have we fostered an environment where we can say we love each other too much to ignore what would destroy us? Let's have a conversation that exhorts. Let's have a conversation that encourages. Let's have a conversation that comforts, but let's also have those conversations that sometimes correct. Because that's what it means to love each other. And if you take those foundational principles and then apply them throughout a lifetime in these 15 avenues, you will have a shepherding influence for the rest of your children's lives. And when you are gone one day, they will be thankful to God that you were there. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace and kindness to us in Jesus that has made us your people. Thank you for the straightforward teaching of your word that makes multi-generational influence a responsibility and the examples we find in your word that impart to us a sense that multi-generational influence is a responsibility. Help us, Lord, to take this to heart and carry it out in a way that's dependent upon you, looking to you, relying on you, and glorifying you. May you make this church a church of genuine love, one member for the other, and may that be something reflected when we go home. That the very kind of love that you have taught for your church is being practiced in our households. And in that way, Lord, prosper us, bless us, work in us in a way that we tell the truth about you. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.